A reading from the second book of Samuel. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The word of the Lord. O Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word, amen. Amen. Last week, we heard the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and his planned murder of Uriah, her husband. And I suggested that the historical individuals uh, that we read about in the Bible, like David, give us insight 
into contemporary figures and into ourselves. And I also suggested that if we look at David's story through Jesus' eyes and ears, as Jesus would have heard this story in the synagogue, we might be drawn to a more compassionate and nuanced view of David and of one another. This week, we are treated to David's confrontation with the prophet Nathan. I should mention also that the intervening story of the successful completion of the murder of David, uh, murder of Uriah, and David's really chillingly detached reception of that news is not in the lectionary. But that's what happened uh, between last week and this week. Last week, sin. This week, judgment. Now, parenthetically, some of you might be wondering, well, why another sermon on the Hebrew Bible as opposed to the Gospel reading? That's been our tradition, usually, to read, to preach from the Gospel text, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Well, first, we do no dishonor to Jesus by studying stories from the Bible that he heard and studied and taught. The Hebrew Bible was Jesus' Bible. And second, the totality of Scripture, not just the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the totality of Scripture is the good news, is the Gospel of God's saving power and grace for us. And finally, I don't think most of us know as many of the stories from the Hebrew Bible as we should. As you can see, it's not dull reading. Some of them are rather spicy. And it's a reminder that the Bible doesn't serve up some sanitized version of humanity. Rather, it presents us as we really are, warts and all, and shows how God works with us to marvelous effect. Anyway, a most notable feature of this particular passage is the prophet Nathan. In the Bible, prophets have the dubious honor of speaking God's words to mortals. They don't predict the future per se, rather they spell out the likely natural and theological consequences of a particular course of action. Something like, if you step off the roof, you will, fit, you will fall onto the ground. So that kind of natural consequences. Nathan first appears in the David saga to tell him that David won't get to build the temple. One of his children will build it. Next, he shows up to point out to David his sin with Bathsheba. That's what we heard last week. And finally, he shows up to remind David that his son Solomon, not his son Adonijah, is to be the next king. Nathan is a truth teller, and obviously a very skilled one, for you don't repeatedly say no to the king and live. Nathan keeps living. Today, Nathan is sent to David to break the bad news that God is very unhappy with him. And he tells David a cleverly disguised parable of exploitation, which, in fact, draws out David's strong, underlying sense of justice. But then, Nathan explicitly connects the dots for the myopic king. First, by listing God's blessings for David, and then by listing David's sins, and then by pronouncing God's consequences. David's murder of Uriah will wreak mayhem, mayhem, 
within his dynasty. When you read on in the second book of Samuel and into the book of Kings, you'll see that these predictions are fulfilled in in hideous ways. Uh, Next week, we'll hear about one of the more tame, terrible things that happens to David in the aftermath of this sin. Well, the enormity of this pronouncement by Nathan brings David to his knees. I have sinned against the Lord, he says. We might add, you've also sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. But the narrative is concerned primarily with the sin against God. Well, so where are we to go with this? First, I don't believe that God actively punishes us for our sins the way that the ancient Hebrews who compiled the oldest parts of our Bible, the way that they believed. I don't think God works that way. The ancient Hebrews, however, could not understand any event, good or evil, as happening apart from the will of God. With regard to evil, I can more honestly believe, and maybe you're the same way, I can more honestly believe that God doesn't cause such and such to happen, particularly bad things, but God does allow creatures, the creation, including germs and viruses and dictators and terrorists, God allows them free will to act for good or for ill. Now, this is not to say that our consequences don't have action, uh, our actions do not have consequences. Far from it. Robert Brown Taylor speaks of the half-life of sin, the half-life of sin, how it keeps on. It might get smaller and smaller, but the consequences last often beyond our ability to comprehend them. So I don't mean that our actions don't have consequences. I mean only to say that I don't think God personally meets out punishment. I think God weeps with us in our sorrows and can guide us, if we allow it, if we allow ourselves to be guided, into a redemptive and empowering understanding of sinful past events. God will redirect the flow of life back to within the banks of the flow of God's purposeful, holy vision for the cosmos. As Martin Luther King said in Montgomery, the moral arm of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Nonetheless, I would say that we moderns We modern people, like the ancients, can only access and discover this redemptive love and power of God if we, like David, are able to say, I have sinned. I have messed up. I accept responsibility for my mistakes. According to ancient Jewish and Christian traditions, Psalm 51 part of which we said together this morning, was composed by David as a confession of sin in this particular matter of the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. It is a deep and powerful expression, both of searing and honest self-reflection and 
of hopeful trust in the mercy and love and power of God. Secondly, I think this story brings up another idea, and that's how important it is for us to have people who will tell us the truth, who can speak the truth in love, as Paul writes to the Ephesians this morning. We need Nathans in our lives who can tell us hard things in ways that we can hear them. For some, that may mean a clever parable. For others, that might mean a two-by-four to the side of the head. People like David need both a clever parable and a two-by-four to the side of the head. In any case, we need to have people in our lives who can be our Nathans. We may, in fact, have them already. They may be sitting next to us in the pew or somewhere else close to us. Those people who may say things that we really don't want to hear, but ones that we need to hear. Finally, I go back to Jesus sitting in the synagogue throughout the course of his life, hearing over and over again this particular passage, this sequel to the mayhem that happens in the wake of David's sin. And I wonder how David's story might have given form to Jesus' own reaction to the blind man, as recorded in chapter 9 of the Gospel of John. Fast forward ahead a thousand years from the events of David's life to first century Israel-Palestine. And you may remember the story of Jesus and his disciples walking along and they run into a blind man. They meet a blind man. And the disciples, the disciples ask him, well, Rabbi, who has sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Whose fault is it? And Jesus' response is a drastic, drastic departure from the accepted wisdom on the consequences of sin. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Perhaps nothing is more important with regard to facing our sins than this. That in the facing of them, we can see them. We can see them as channels for the possibility of God's power being revealed in us. Or as David puts it in the psalm, For behold, you look for truth deep within me. It's there. And you will make me understand wisdom. Give me the joy of your saving help again. And sustain me with your bountiful spirit. Amen. Amen.